Well, as Stan mentioned, I am from Mayberry Country. And this past summer, I was speaking at a camp in North Carolina. And so we as a family made our pilgrimage to Floyd's Barber Shop and Snappy's Lunch. And, and had, had a good time there. And everybody else wondered, why is it so special? But, but this, this morning, I'm already a, a little tired. We were at Plano Bible Chapel this morning during the second week of a five-week Sunday school class. And I thought about not alerting any of the elders that I would show up late this morning and just seeing how, how much they would sweat and worry. But I thought, well, I might want to preach again, so I won't do that. I want to begin with one question, though. When we look at Ephesians 2, why did Christ die? That's a question we think about a lot, reflect on a lot. Why did Christ die? And it's interesting to think about, John Piper has a book titled 50 Reasons Jesus Christ Came to Die. 50 reasons. If you had to sit down and list 50 reasons, could you do it? I would venture to guess most of us think of one reason 50 times. And we don't think about 50 different reasons or the different ways, the depth and the richness that is found in what Christ did in the cross. And and when we do think about what Christ did, why he came to die, certain passages just, just jump out. And you think about them. John 3.16, God so loved the world. Think about Mark 10. Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Think of 2 Corinthians 5. About he who knew no sin became sin on behalf of us. Do you think about Ephesians 2.11-22 through 22, though? It's a passage that I, I don't know that I have heard much whenever someone preaches on why did Christ came to die, but I think it's something that presents a very profound idea and something also whenever we think about why do we gather the way that we do. In the New Testament, things are radically different. We're not coming to faith in Christ and then moving to a, ge- to a geographical location. We are not centrally based in the nation of Israel. We gather all over the world. Whenever we come time to build a church building, we don't have the architecture laid out for us on how the building is supposed to look. There are so many details, so many laws that that are followed in the Old Testament that are not part of the church. Laws that we do not follow in the church. Why is that? It's as if we showed up to college and all of a sudden they don't take attendance. They don't care about your GPA or give tests. I'd probably wonder why. Why is that? And the answer that we're going to look at in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, and then also in chapter 3, is Christ restructured the way the church is established, the way God's people meet. And he begins in, in verse 11 with the reason why. Why are things restructured? Why did something have to change? In verse 11, the first command in the book of Ephesians, Paul says, Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. When Paul begins that, think about what the language he uses and think about what would come to your mind if that same language was used in a different context. If someone said, Remember, remember what it was like when you were called this by them. Do you remember what it's like? 
And it's something I would guess that most of us in this room don't truly understand. I would doubt there's very few of us, maybe some, who have ever experienced someone on a regular basis putting us down because of a physical difference, because of the way that we looked. Maybe, maybe we've experienced it time from time to time, but I think when Paul says this, right off the bat, he's creating an emotional response in his readers. And I think about how the movie Pride began. Movie about the, the black swim team. And it begins with a scene of the swim coach swimming in his younger years. And how when the, when the race started, he was the only one that jumped in the pool. He was the only black swimmer there. Nobody else wanted to race with him. And when he looks up, he realizes everyone is looking at him and booing. And looking down on him because of a physical difference. I have no idea what that feels like. But I wonder if Paul's readers, when he heard that, if they felt some of that. And Paul uses language here, Gentiles in the flesh. Flesh not in the negative sense of living according to the flesh, not according to the spirit, but saying you're, you're physical. There was a physical difference. You were called the circumcision or the uncircumcision by those called the circumcision. There was a physical difference between those associated with God's people and those not. And when he talks about their separation from God in verse 12, he continues to use language that highlights not just how they were separated from God, but how they, there was a distance between them and God's people. If you look at verse 12, you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. He's talking about not just were you not, uh, not at, uh, at peace with God, but there was a division between you and God's people, between Jew and Gentile. A division existed. And in verse 11, or verse 13, he brings up and says, it's different now. Everything's changed. But now, in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near. And he tells how that happened, by the blood of Christ. He's going to continue up and follow that and say, there was this division, now it's not true. Let's talk about how that happened. The Gentiles were in a position where they were separated from God and then separated from God's people. A, a doubly bad position to be in. Now, it's all different. How did that come about? How did their change in position come about? In verse 14, Paul says, He himself, referring to Christ, is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He took those two groups that were separate, that had a dividing wall between them, and made one group. He created one new group, the church. And this is where we think about why does the church, why is it consist, made up, structured the way it is? Christ made one group. How did he do it? Verse 15 by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. 
He abolished the law. Abolish can have a very negative connotation to it if we talk about the abolition of slavery. Something really bad, we need to abolish it. When Paul's talking about abolishing the law or setting aside the law, he's not saying let's, let's get rid of it because it's bad. We need to set aside the law because it's bad. The law was good. The law showed the holiness of God. The law gave the Israelites a way to live. But there were some, some negative, negative impact that came from the law. You had um, dietary, dietary differences. So you sit down to eat a meal. Some people love the sausage and egg biscuit. Other people aren't going aren't gonna to eat it. You know, I'll take my biscuits and gravy without the sausage. And I'm, I'm thinking, no, that's, it was supposed to have the sausage in there. It's the way it's supposed to be. And there's differences. And there's physical differences. And when Christ came, he, he won a victory on the cross. It says, in his flesh, through his blood, Christ did something on the cross that allowed that to be set aside, that allowed the law to be set aside so that we do not follow all of the laws that are in the Old Testament. And I'm not saying that the law doesn't give us a moral guide. There's a debate about how much of the law was set aside. I'm not going to get into that far above my head. But I do know this. There, there were some things tied into the law that were set aside. Paul brings up that idea when he talks about there were those called circumcision, those called uncircumcision. A very fundamental part of the law right there has been set aside. And it's created something new, a, a completely different scenario in which we live. And this is uh, when we think about the difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's easy to think about, I understand why the sacrificial system was changed. We don't need a priest. We don't need a mediator to go to God. There's not a need for that. The once-for-all sacrifice has come about. The book of Hebrews goes through so much of this. But there's so many other things. Why did God's people need to be constructed in not one nation, not one geographical location? Why is there so much openness when you look at how the specifics of the church goes about its business, is constructed. It's so different, and that's a, a huge reason why Christ came to die, that Paul is making here, saying, I came to set aside these differences. This is at least one reason why I came to die. And I, I began thinking about, how do you illustrate that? What, what is a way that, that makes that come across clearly? And I thought about, well, at some point in time, a lot of us will go for a job interview. On your resume, you're going to list certain things. People want to know, what's your educational background? Where did you go to college? And a lot of times, depending on where you went to college, there's, there's some prestige attached to it, or maybe there's less prestige. And this is where I wish I was back in North Carolina where I could pick on Blue Devil and Tar Heel fans, but it's Big 12 country, so... I'm in the wrong place. But, but what if a law came out and says, you, don't, you can't put that on your resume? That's unnecessary information. If you're going to get a job, it's going to be based on how well you handle yourself in the interview. Can you demonstrate 
what you know, what you can do, what you can't do. All of a sudden, things are different. Completely different scenario. Because someone can't just say, well, I, I am from this school. And that just carry a lot of weight. The, 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 the playing ground is level. I think also whenever something I've loved to do from, from childhood is to play basketball. Love to show up somewhere, go to the gym, play basketball. And something that has consistently happened throughout my life, I'll show up and everybody's picking teams. All right, I want this guy, I want this guy. People are not, they notice something, a, a physical aspect of who I am. I'm short and I'm scrawny. All right, those are not two attributes that you're dying to have in a basketball player. And so a lot of times, it's not, oh, I want that guy. It's more of, well, okay, yeah, he's number 10, we'll take him. Imagine if the rules were changed. If all of a sudden scrawny people under six feet tall, their points counted twice as much. I would love that. I would get picked much, much sooner if that ever happened. But the way it, the system, the way it is now, physical differences make a difference. They carry something. When Christ restructured the church, he's saying, I don't want any of those differences to matter anymore. What nationality you are is, is not the focal point. In the, in the Old Testament, God did have a concern for Gentiles. It is throughout the Old Testament. When God blessed Abraham, when he gave them the law, the goal was for Israel to obey God so that other nations would come. There was a, an incredible emphasis placed on other nations. But it was through them coming to Israel. It was placed on them coming to this location. And Paul's making the point, that's different now. That's the point he makes whenever he says, uh, so that in himself, verse 15 he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body. Not reconcile them as two different groups to God, but reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. A radical point here. Paul is saying the way we are constructed is different. And in the rest of this chapter, he spells out what's different. He talks about, in verse 19, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens and saints, and are of God's household. We've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. The physical temple, God is not dwelling in a physical temple in a specific geographical location. He dwells in us, the church. And this is different. And this leads to the question, the Gentiles have a new position. It came about because Christ came to die on the cross and changed things. It has implications. Why is that so important? Why did things need to be restructured? Why is it that, that God did this. At this point in time, why did he bring about this change? And this is something that Paul addresses in chapter 3. And I'm not going to go through every verse in, in this passage, but I think Paul, when he gives the reason, he begins with, with a statement, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, 
for the sake of you Gentiles, and then Paul does what I wish I had known about this when I was in high school, because Paul wrote in run-on sentences, and I wish I could have told my English teachers that in high school. I said, well, Paul did it. He was an apostle of God. It must not be that bad. Paul gets on, starts talking about that and doesn't get back to his main point until verse 13. He gets off, off subject, or I, I'm saying off subject. I'm saying he, he adds his caveat and, and goes with it and runs with it and has this run-on sentence. And what he says, he, talk, he begins to talk about this mystery, which in verse 5 he says, this wasn't known in ages past the way it's known now. This is something new. This is something uh, that, that people did not understand before. And what is it that's new? Verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's what's new. That's what's people, that is what people did not get. And when you look in the book of Acts, you're at Acts, I believe it's 11. And Peter is still having to have a vision to say, yes, it's okay. Yes, it's okay. Gentiles are part of the body of faith. Yes, you can baptize them. It took a long time for people to, to get this idea and to comprehend what Paul is saying. And again, why? Why? Why is this so important? Verse 8, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. And here's the reason. Verse 10, he tells why it's so important that the church is made up of Jew and Gentiles, fellow heirs, uh, fellow partakers of the promises, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. God's wisdom is displayed through the church in a way that it was not before. God's wisdom is displayed in a way that it was not known before. And that leads to the summary of when I say what these two chapters, if you're going to summarize it and say what is the point Paul is making here? A major reason why Christ died was so he could create the church in which a diverse and unified people could stand equally and display God's wisdom as it had not been before. So when we talk about why did Christ die, one reason, somewhere when we're reflecting on how much we love and benefit the fact that our sins have been forgiven and that we are at peace with God, Somewhere when we think uh, and are reflecting on that, why did Christ die? We've got to say he died to bring different nations together. He died so that a diverse group of people could praise him. God doesn't want everybody praising him that looks the same. That, that, that is not part of God's plan. God wants unity amongst diverse peoples. And this still, I think Paul is, is getting at a theological principle here as far as why is that so important? Why does it really matter? Uh, you know, we tend to think quantitatively and say, well, if there's six billion people praising the Lord, 
Does it matter if they're from just two different countries or from 50? Does it make a difference? Does it make a difference whether or not there's a diversity or if everybody just looks the same? I think Paul is driving at two theological principles that I, I see coming from this. One, when we think about why is diversity and unity both important, one is who we represent. Turn to John 17. I want to read one, one uh, or a couple of verses here that make a point. Often we think about, well, how are we going to proclaim Christ to those around us such that they will, will look at who Christ is and say, yeah, you're right. He is the Son of God. Yeah, you're right. He, he is who you say He is. Jesus gave us a very good argument that we can give to people to show, yes, Christ is the Son of God. He was fully human and fully divine. And what we're saying is not something we made up, not something we cooked up, came up with ourselves. This is true. You want to know why it's true? In John 17, verse 21, he says in his prayer that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one, or that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus is making the point, if, if you demonstrate the unity that's found in who God is, in the triune God, then people are going to look back and say, there's, there's something there. I cannot dismiss what you're saying. And I think this is important here where we remember we serve a triune God. I don't think it's possible for one individual to reflect who God is and to reflect God's glory. That's why God redeems a people, not a whole bunch of individuals that say separated. I've heard it said salvation is always personal but never individual. Salvation is always personal but never individual. When Christ saved us, he is wanting to proclaim his glory in such a way And we represent God when we are diverse and unified. And the second reason why I think that is so important is people know why we gather. If we are diverse and unified, people will know why we gather. And think about it. If we came here and everybody was about the same economic level, everybody was had the similar background, everybody looked the same, Everybody had the same hobbies. Everybody loved Andy Griffith. Wouldn't that be great, you know, if, if we all had that in common? Uh, all right, people would, would look at the, at the church and then say, well, I know why you get together. Because it's, you didn't want to drive to the community center. And the church was closer. You didn't like your neighbor, and so you didn't want the community events. You thought it would be easier because not all my neighbors are like me. But I can find a group of people and we can gather around whatever. Your favorite sports team, your favorite type of music, your favorite TV show. We can all whine about the tax bracket we're in and how we pay too much. or Whatever it is. People could look at the church and say, well, I know why they gather. It's for this reason or that reason. But if there is a group of people who are not normally together. You do not normally find them together. That speaks volumes 
about what that group of people values. It's like, I believe it's, it was in Nigeria. When they had a civil war, they gave a three-day, they, they ceased the war for three days because Pele was coming to play soccer there. And you hear that and you think, those people are fanatical about soccer. If they literally put their guns down and say, I promise you won't shoot at me, and actually believe the other person won't shoot at them, man, they, they like soccer a lot. And for us, if whatever differences we have, if we said, we'll put them aside, not just for three days, we're going to put them aside and gather around what we have in common. And if people looked and said, I don't understand you people. You don't have anything in common except Christ. Wouldn't that be great? If people said, I can't figure out why you, why you get together. I think that's the theological principle Paul is getting at. God's wisdom is displayed in a way when a diverse and unified group of people meet than when it is not. That's why the church exists as it does. And that should lead to the question, well, how are we doing? And, and what, what needs to change? What do we need to do differently in our lives? What, what have we done well? What, what do we need to work on? When we think of applying that truth to our, life, our lives and saying, okay, I exist to glorify God, and God's going to be more glorified if I'm working side by side in unity with people that are not the same as me, what is that going to look like? Number one, and this one is very obvious, but we don't often remember, value unity. And this is something I'm not going to focus on. I would just say go home and read chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians. Paul over and over and over again talks about how we treat each other. And I, I can't help but think he's, he's, he's fleshing out the theology he laid in these first three chapters and saying, all right, remember, the, the church, we don't display God's glory when there's disunity. So watch how you talk about other people. Watch how you treat them. Don't steal. All of these things flow out of an understanding of who we are. All of those flow from that. So value unity. And I've... I heard one, one uh, pastor mention in a sermon once about how important that is. And he said, that's why we will, we will cut you off immediately if we hear you gossiping about somebody. And it's interesting. We often don't think about gossip as we need, we need to fight that. That is so hard. Or putting someone else down. Value unity. This is incredibly important. That's something I think we, we know we need to do. We often just don't. Do well. Something we often do not think about, though, is valuing diversity. If I were to ask you, can you name three specific things in your life that you're doing that is promoting the way that you value diversity? Are you actively, do you have any friends that don't look just like you? Are you actively pursuing any more that don't look like you? What are you doing to pursue diversity? So that when people look at you and the people you are constantly around, they don't say, well, you just meet together because you know, the, the guy in your small group has a big TV and you can watch the Super Bowl there. 
That's not why you gather. I can't figure out why. This guy hates football. This guy loves it. This, why do you gather? What are we doing to pursue diversity? And, and a couple quick specifics about why, what we can do. One, right off the bat is, this is why missions is important. Paul, when, when I mentioned chapter 3 is this big run-on sentence, if you look at verse 13 that gets to his point, what he initially set out to say, what he says is, don't lose heart at the trials I'm going through. Don't lose heart at the trials I'm going through. What, what were the trials Paul was experiencing, and why was he experiencing them? When you read the book of Acts, you look at Paul and you think, all right, this guy is either incredibly unlucky or incredibly dumb. He keeps going in these synagogues, and they keep stoning him. They keep beating him. They keep treating him badly. And what, what was Paul's mission? Romans 15, he says, my goal was to preach Christ where he's not been heard. And Paul's saying, when you look at me and think I'm the unluckiest man alive because I got beat up in one more city, don't, don't pity me. Don't sit back and think, why does he keep doing that? Is it really worth it? Know this, it is worth it. It is worth it. We bring God glory when more and different types of people are praising God. So one is, is value missions. Another thing we can do is pursue diversity in our own circles. And what I mean by that is don't wait for a program. We're, we're really good when we think about, yeah, we should pursue diversity. And so the elders of the church should do this so that we work with this group. And there should be a group set up and we should have to fill out questionnaires so that ministry groups don't have too many people that look the same. No, don't. Don't wait for somebody else to tell you what to do. Just think in your own life. Are, are, is there a diversity in your life? Do you have, are you benefiting from friends that don't look like you? And again, I know for me, especially growing up in the South, I always think about skin color when I think about diversity because I know how, uh, how I, the way I grew up and so many people around me were, were very racist. And so that's the first thing that comes in my mind. It's not just that. Now do not, that is definitely true. There is no place for racism in the church. That is true. But it's not just along skin color. Think about, uh, do, do you have any friends of different economic levels? Or do you talk in such a way that would discourage someone that looks differently than you? Do, do you talk about sports so much that if somebody hates sports, they would just really not want to be around you? That's something I have to remind myself about. Is all right, sports is not that important. We don't need to talk about the Mavericks, especially right now. (laughs) Think about that. How do you pursue diversity in your own circles? A a final one that a, a specific application that we need to look at, how are we doing is don't chase away diversity. And you may say, huh? Don't chase it away. What do you mean? And this is kind of piggybacking on what I just said is, are you careful in your speech and what you say that, that you're not chasing people off that look differently? I remember Steve Sanchez told me once about a guy, this was in, in Dubuque, Iowa. He came to know the Lord. And one of his first questions was, do I have to become a Republican? 
he, he just did not like Republicans nor what they stood for and thought they, they were arrogant and couldn't stand them. And it's a, it's a funny question, but it's interesting. Some, some of the guys in the group, they were like, yeah. Are you, what kind of question is that? But, but what kind of testimony is that? We, we can very easily say things and, and put down different ideological values that someone of a different uh, political uh, bent may have that, you know, there's, there's a lot of churches that a Democrat would never go in just because they would probably get tired of hearing everybody wail about how bad socialized health care would be. And, all right, what, what does the Bible say about uh, privatized versus socialized health care? Nothing. Nothing. So if we run somebody off for some reason because we can't shut up about something the Bible says nothing about, then that's not right. We shouldn't do that. We should be careful about what we say and say, is someone that's different than me on this issue, am I going to just run them off? And this is also, I've had a few friends at seminary who were from other countries, and they talked about being in churches in America and at times just feeling so uncomfortable with on July 4th, Sunday. And everything was about America. And they just felt like, well, I can't, I can't really participate in that. Uh, I mean, I, I'm glad to be in America, but I don't feel those same emotions that you feel. I don't feel like America's causes are always as pure and honest as you feel. Now, there is, there is definitely a time and a place to be patriotic. But when we gather, we're gathered around Christ. That's what we're gathered around. And, and, and we, we, we talk about things and, and maybe, maybe mention things that... Hey, think about how someone from another, another country is going to feel. And I got to experience that when I did my internship in Australia. And it was interesting. I remember people that within two minutes of meeting them, they let me know how stupid George Bush was. And, and I'm thinking, all right, I don't even like to hear him give public speeches myself. But I, I kind of bristled at that and thought, well, you're talking about my country. And, and then the thought hit me, okay, well, do, do I do that to somebody else? If someone from a different nationality comes to where uh, a church in, in my country Am I going to run them off? Am I going to say something that is going to cause them to run away? And, and again, this, this may sound, well, this is kind of trivial. Why are we talking, talking about such little things? But Christ came to die so that we could have diversity. He gave his life so that we could have diversity. We should be willing to watch our speech and look at our actions. If Christ can die, we should be able to do those little things. And they make a difference. One, one uh, another story that talks about the need to be sensitive. I think so many things that, that most of us do are unconscious. We do them and don't even think about them. Right? If, if I were to, to ask for a show of hands and say, how many racists do we have here this Sunday morning? Nobody's going to put their hand up. 
But if someone put a camera on you and watched you for a couple weeks to say, do you ever say or do anything that might be construed or, or interpreted as racist? And I'm not talking about misinterpreted. I'm talking about legitimately could be interpreted as racist. We would probably all fail somewhere. We, we would probably all at some point lead, lead to this attitude of, well, we certainly do it better than everybody else. We certainly do it better than everybody else. I've got a, a good friend of mine who <clears throat> lives in a, a very white state. And he is the, uh, his family is the only African-American family at this church. He's a campus minister at a historically black college that has a lot of diversity at the college. And he's told me, I've tried to get students from this college to come to our college group. And they won't do it. I would wonder if, if you would ask them, hey, are you, are you being racist? Are you saying, no, I'm not going to go there? Probably not. But another good question is not, are you being racist, but do you value diversity? Do you value diversity? Is it really hard? Is it really that hard to support a fellow church member and go to the college group that is at the college you go to? He talks about deacons or elders in the church who he knows and works alongside out in public, they'll just walk past him and not even see him. And, and I thought, and he said the same thing. I don't think they're being racist, but at some point I would like to be noticed. I, I would like for somebody to see me and acknowledge me and acknowledge that, yes, I'm there. And we have to be sensitive and, and realize there could be a ton of things that we do that chase away diversity that we're not even thinking about and don't even realize. And I, I think something that sort of typifies the way that we often think about diversity and the importance of it is the way that the, the church has often responded since the, the civil rights movement. And, and think about this. If a particular group has been mistreated for hundreds of years, it may take more than an invitation and a welcome mat. You may have to work a little bit harder. You mistreat somebody for hundreds of years, and then you wonder, well, why, I, don't, I can't figure out why they didn't want to come worship with us. I, I, can't, I can't figure it out. Imagine if a particular family your, or a neighbor was constantly tearing down your fence, constantly not caring for your property, didn't care about, about, about you, constantly mistreated you. And then one day they say, all right, you know, what I did was wrong. Why don't you come over for supper sometime? You're, you're going to think, well, okay, I appreciate that you did something wrong, but uh, how do I know when I come in that door that you're not just going to do something else? How do I know? We often pursue diversity, diversity very passively. If it happens, that's good. If it happens, I'm all for it. I'm not going to chase anybody away that doesn't look like me. But do we ever pursue it? And the last thought that I I would leave us with is, go back to that initial question. Why did Christ die? Why did Christ die on the cross? And think about this. Christ, one reason was, those verses I mentioned earlier, He came to give us forgiveness of sins. Christ's death was an acceptable sacrifice so that we could be at peace with God, that our sins could be forgiven, 
How would you react if someone in the foyer began to say, well, I think we kind of overdo the, the cross thing. Do, do we really need Christ's death on the cross? Is it, is it really all that important? Or if somebody said, I, I, I don't know, do we need the Lord's Supper every Sunday? Do we have to focus on that one event every Sunday? Is it really that important? Maybe, maybe it wasn't a, a payment for sins. Hopefully, if someone said that, I would imagine your emotions would begin to be stirred up. And you would have to grab something and you would be thinking, no, he, he did die so that my sins could be forgiven. Your heart would beat faster and you would think, that's not right. Christ gave an incredible sacrifice and you're undermining it. You're negating something Christ did. That can't happen. As your emotions raise, think about this. If somebody begins to gossip, or if somebody never talks about missions, or if somebody never talks about pursuing diversity, do, do you at some point you, you get those same emotions and say, wait, wait a second, something's not right here. You, sh- you can't gossip. You shouldn't do that. Wait a second, we've, we've talked about time and time again who we think will wind up in the Stanley Cup finals, but when's the last time we talked about what God's doing in Asia? Why, why don't we talk about that? This is something that's important. If we never talked about an appreciation for why Christ died to cover our sins, that would be odd. That would be odd, and that would be wrong. That would be ungrateful. If we never talk about pursuing diversity, that's something that, that we have got to focus on and got to realize this is a reason Christ came to die. And a, a closing illustration that I think should challenge us when we think about this, I, I thought about on Friday, I was at work. I'm a, <clears throat> as we're preparing to go overseas, I'm working part-time as an engineer. And as you can guess, the part-time engineer gets all the glorified jobs. So I got the job of scanning plans in. And so I'm standing before the scanner and putting the, the plans in, trying to feed them and trying to hold my mouth open right, work the paper so it catches it right. And, and I'm standing here for five minutes saying, this scanner, it, it's not catching the paper so that it'll scan it through and the image can come up on the computer. It's not scanning. And I jokingly said to another coworker. You know, this scanner's pretty good if it would just catch paper. This, this scanner's not that bad if it could only you know, detect that paper's right there. And we laughed and said, well, that's kind of what it's there for. So w- why is it there for? If, it, if it's that worthless at what it was created to do. When we think about the church and say, okay, we've got to be unified, and not just unified with everyone that looks like me, but unified with people that don't look me, and say, well, the church, we do a pretty good job other than that. We do a pretty good job other than that. Other than that whole diversity and unity thing, we do a pretty good job. Hopefully that would cause us to chuckle and say, well, what? why do you exist the way you exist? Why did Christ die on the cross and restructure everything? That's a question that I hope we think about 
And I hope we don't think about how someone else does it bad. But look inside first and think, God, how do I need to change? Lord, we thank you that you are a God that, that is so great that you should be worshipped by people of all ethnicities, all nations, and from the entire world. We thank you for that and, and praise you that you have given us the privilege of worshiping you. We confess we have often uh, not honored you in our actions and ask that you would give us the heart to look inside and to see where we can honor you better in, in the way that we act. Uh, Father, we pray these things in your son's name and by the power of your spirit. Amen.